Well, good morning. My name is Russ Allen, and I'm the student ministries pastor here at West Shore. Um, just want to welcome you and say it's a privilege to be able to share God's word with you this morning, and I believe that he has a powerful message for each and every one of us. But before we get started, um, I want to do something maybe a little out of the ordinary. So I am used to, to speaking to students, and that means that I will typically get some some interaction with the audience, okay? And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to the person sitting next to you, give them a little wave, because uh, we're, we're a family here, right? Um, and, and you can say to them, hey, neighbor. Keep awake. Keep awake. There you go. There you go. You guys are catching on. I wasn't sure how it would go over this service. Last service, it was good. Uh, but you guys have a, a bit of a reputation here, so just kidding. But hey, who, who needs coffee when you have the Holy Spirit, right? Okay, wait, a few of you hesitated on that. <laughs> it's okay, it's okay. Um, so we are continuing our series in First Thessalonians called Keep Awake. Keep Awake. And this is... Um, a a book full of wake-up calls for us, that we are to keep awake, which means that we are to live on mission and live um, righteously in light of Christ coming back, because he will come back in power. Amen? And today, we're going to see that keeping awake, staying on mission, includes boldly proclaiming the gospel. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4 this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1, verses 1 through 4. It says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that are coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. If you have a pen or pencil and you like to write in your Bible, you can underline in the midst of, in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So let's pray again and ask the Lord for some help this morning. Father God, thank you for your word Lord, I pray that you would speak through me. Father, I pray for each person here that they would not only just hear your words, but they would be moved to be doers of your word. Father, I pray that you would instill in us a desire to boldly proclaim the gospel no matter where we are. We pray all of this in your name, amen. 
So I don't know about you, but when I read this passage, I just automatically hear the power in what Paul is saying there. That there's, there's something inside of me that's just that's moved by his words, and, and maybe you can relate to that. So part of my job this morning is I want to stir that up in us a little bit more. I want us to walk out of here with a passion to boldly proclaim the gospel, to be like these men. And in order to do that, we first have to consider some of the context of the passage, because when we do, it makes the passage that much more powerful. So Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica, and he's referencing some sort of conflict that occurred or that is occurring. And, and what is the shameful treatment that he mentions from Philippi? Well, Philippi is a nearby city. It's in the same province as Thessalonica called Macedonia. Uh, these cities were close by. People would travel easily between these two cities and word would travel fast between these two cities. And what's really cool is you can actually read all about this in Acts chapter 16 and 17. Now you don't have to flip there. That, we'll make that your homework for after the sermon. But to save some time, I'll just, I'll summarize it for you. So Paul and Silas, they begin to boldly preach the gospel in Philippi, but are quickly met with opposition by people who feel threatened by their message. And in Acts 16, 23 through 25, it says, And when they had inflicted many blows upon Paul and Silas, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And I love what it says right after that. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So Paul and Silas, they end up being released, and they travel to Thessalonica, where they go straight to the synagogue and the marketplace, and they begin to proclaim the gospel in spite of everything that just happened. And again, they're met with opposition in the form of a mob. The people in the mob, they say this, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Paul and Silas, they eventually escape Thessalonica by night. They go on to Berea, where they go straight to the synagogue in the marketplace, and they begin to proclaim the gospel, and so on and so forth. So would you ask the Lord right now that he would speak to you in such a way this morning that you would be emboldened enough to turn the world upside down? This is the context from which Paul speaks when he references this shameful treatment at Philippi and the conflict at Thessalonica. But then we might ask, what was this conflict about? Why were people so upset? Why were they so angry? Well, it wasn't because 
the Christians were being nice to people or because they were serving the community. And of, of course they were. But isn't that what we sometimes think that sharing the gospel is? When I was younger, I went to a, a different church and we had a guest pastor come in and he said this quote, and maybe you've heard it before. He said, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. And I remember as a kid feeling so encouraged by that quote and, and, and just, just loving that. It's, it's stuck with me to, till today. But as I've gotten older, I've realized that that was really just my own sinful nature trying to give me an excuse to not speak up when I needed to. And I dare say that that is Satan's favorite quote because it sounds just good enough to deceive people into believing it. No, the reason Paul and other Christians were facing persecution was because of what they proclaimed. It was the contents of the message. It was the gospel's claims about Jesus' deity. It was the possibility of resurrection. His commands about human sexuality. The gospel's unique empowerment for ethnic reconciliation and much more. Perhaps those are things that we can all relate to as well. But these weren't little spats of disagreement or merely a battle of ideas people were being dragged into the streets and being beaten and going to jail because of this. And yet in jail, Paul and Silas, they sing hymns. And by the way, they convert the jailer who was about to commit suicide. And after all of this, they go and they preach the gospel knowing that it will all just happen again. They preach the gospel in the midst of much conflict. In the midst of. In the midst of. These are not isolated incidences in the span of Christian history. This boldness is characteristic of Christians through the ages. And where it is not present is an anomaly. Almost all of the apostles faced gruesome deaths because of their unrelenting proclamation of the gospel. Christians under the early Roman Empire were fed to wild animals and they were burned alive. Christians in atheistic communist countries were imprisoned and sent to labor camps. And Christians in the Middle East today are beheaded at the hands of Islamic extremists in the midst of, in the midst of, how, why? Because I think to myself, here I am, middle-class suburban America, and I get nervous to even come up here, much less go talk to my neighbor about the gospel. But I want that boldness. I want that boldness. And I hope that you do too.
So how can they be so bold? How can they be so bold? That brings us to our main point for today. The gospel message compels ultimate boldness in proclaiming it. The gospel message compels ultimate boldness in proclaiming it. So what is it about this message that compels that boldness? And how does it compare to other messages that the world is constantly feeding me? After all, there seems to be a reason that Paul was bold enough to go to the marketplace and the synagogue that somehow his message could withstand competing viewpoints. Today, we hear everything from wild political conspiracy theories to theories that are widely accepted by a specific community, much less messages about life and happiness that we hear proclaimed through music, movies, and social media. Messages are all around us. Some are good and helpful, and others are malicious and destructive. Well, I want to propose to you that there are four factors we should consider when examining a message and how bold we can and should be in proclaiming it. The origin of the message, the nature of the message, the results of the message, and the aim of the message. So let's go back to 1 Thessalonians 2 and see how the gospel message is unique in its origin, nature, results, and aim. So the origin of the message, point number one, the gospel is the very word of God. The gospel is the very word of God. It's not of human origin. Look at verse two and you can circle gospel, of God, gospel of God. What is the origin of messages you believe? The gospel stands above all other messages in that it is not derived from human experience, reason, wit, or ingenuity. The foundations of all other messages and theories in the world, even the best of them, are flawed. Some, obviously, more than others. The reason for this is because at the foundation of all other messages is man. And there is not a human alive who has perfect knowledge, wisdom, or character. That's why human theories are constantly being disproven, reworked, or revised. There's a term out there, it's called superseded theories. Superseded theories are theories that were once widely accepted within an academic community, but are now considered incomplete or debunked. And even within the time frame of modernity, which is just our modern age, there are over 70 superseded theories just in the mainstream sciences. Now, the reason I tell you that is not that we can have no confidence in ideas derived from humans. Of course we can. But that we cannot have ultimate confidence in them. 
They are not worth building our lives on and they are not worth sacrificing everything for because the faultiness of humanity is in their DNA. But the message that we have as Christians is the gospel of God. It is foolishness to the world, but wisdom to those who believe. It is divine revelation. It has a perfect and eternal foundation. The gospel message is at once too mysterious for simple human minds to conceive, and yet so simple that convoluted human minds easily overlook it. And I believe that the best testimony for the origin of the gospel is the contents of a gospel message. We all desire perfection. We long to live in a perfect world. We can just see the evidence of that around us. We recognize certain things in the world that are not right. Things that we, that we try to prevent, like sex trafficking and murder. But how is it that no matter how hard we try, we can't seem to bring about the perfect world that we so desperately long for? What if it's because the problem isn't first, first and foremost out there, but is instead in here? What if the root of what we hate actually exists in us? Now, certainly most people are not sex traffickers and murderers. But do you have the root of lust in your heart? Do you have the root of hatred in your heart? Some of you might have gardens at home. If you have a garden or even just a yard, you'll know that if you cut off the top of an ugly weed in your garden, it will just grow back. You have to pull out the root. God's perfect garden cannot have the root of any weeds. Perhaps that's why he cast us out of it in Genesis. Perfection means the destruction of ourselves. We need saving from ourselves. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus saves us from the sin that lies at the heart of who we are. He lived the life we could not live to give us what we do not deserve. Perfection. And we realize in him that our deepest longing for perfection is not truly a desire for a place, but a person. The perfect world that we want is really a place with perfect fellowship with God. And in Christ, it is yours. This is the gospel of God. It is too perfect for mere humans to make up. And it is the only one that effectively resolves the greatest problems that humanity faces. We can have boldness in proclaiming this message because it is the very word of God. But a question for us, do you treat this message, this book, 
as if it were really God's word? Do you wake up every day excited to read it, with the passion to tell others about it? It's the very word of God. That's the origin. The nature of the message. Point number two, the gospel is true. The gospel is true. Look at verse three, and you can circle, not from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. What is the nature of the messages that you believe? So many of the world's messages are founded upon theory and feeling, self-gain or self-promotion. This of course makes sense because the nature of a message is derived from the origin of the message, which is humanity. But beware the message that only appeals to people's emotions. Paul warns us in 2 Timothy 4. He says, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Our society maybe some of you sitting here today, believe that the resurrection of Jesus is a myth. But take note of what Paul says are the actual myths, teachings based on feelings. The problem with these types of messages is that they hold no real weight. Their nature has no density and they do not last. Like a child blowing bubbles, they appear shining and enticing as they float into the air before bursting. You see this in our culture with ideas that are embraced as far as they are accepted, but are quickly abandoned with the change of the cultural tides. So friends, what do you believe is the nature of the gospel's message? There was a study done several years ago where researchers asked people at church why they were Christians. The most common answers were because they grew up in a Christian household, their parents were Christians, the Christian message gave them meaning and fulfillment, because the Christian community welcomed them, because they wanted to be happy. But here is the problem. You don't walk into persecution because of your parents' beliefs. You don't pick up your cross and pursue holiness merely for the sake of happiness. You don't endure what the apostles and Christians through the ages endured because Christianity makes you feel good or is good for you. No wonder almost 70% of Christian teens leave the church when they begin attending college and I've seen it happen. We must offer more than feel-good messages, comfortable community, and happy experiences. We have boldness to declare the gospel message because it is true. There is no error or impurity, no need for deception. 
And it's not just the perfect beauty of the message, like I mentioned earlier, that makes it true. No. Unlike almost all other religious messages, at the core of the gospel message is a historical claim. Our sins are forgiven and we can live eternally with God because Jesus really was crucified. He really did die. He really was resurrected. And he really did appear to the disciples. If you're here this morning and you don't believe that, investigate it for yourself. But in the meantime, let me put a pebble in your shoe. Why would the disciples be willing to suffer and die for something that they knew was false? Do you really believe that the gospel message is true? Can you defend it as something more than a belief that works for you? Perhaps one of the reasons we do not proclaim the gospel as boldly as we should is because we haven't taken the nature of the message to heart. It is true. The result of the message. Point number three, the gospel is effective to change lives. Go back to verse number one and you can circle, not in vain, not in vain. What is the result of messages you believe? The best man-made ideas improve behavior, minimize the effects of human flaws, while the worst ones lead to divisiveness and destruction. But even at their best, the messages and ideas of the world serve only as beautiful bandages, but have no real power to heal. When I was in college, I tore my ACL. I've actually torn both of my ACLs. Um, but the ACL is the central ligament in your knee that provides stability. And after the initial injury and the pain and the swelling went down, I was able to go about my, my normal activities. But as many of you know, if I wanted to run and experience the fullness of life, then I needed to have surgery. Through the hope of the gospel, Lives are transformed. We go from walking to running. Or even better, we go from death to life. God does surgery on our hearts that the world cannot do. The gospel is the message that people need. Repent and believe, and you become a new creation. Through the gospel, the Thessalonians turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Chapter 1, verse 9, you can see it there. And listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
Very next verse. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. The gospel is effective to change lives. Friends, you can be bold because the gospel has power. It does not depend on your physical capabilities, your education, your personality, your mental capacity, nothing. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we hold this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The word of God does not return void. It is not spoken in vain. You can proclaim it with ultimate boldness. That's the result of the message. Finally, the aim of the message. The gospel goal is to please God. Look at verse four, you can circle. We speak not to please man, but to please God. What is the aim of messages you believe? We do not proclaim the gospel for the same aim as worldly messages. We do not proclaim the gospel because we want to win an argument. We do not proclaim the gospel to expose someone's flaws. We do not proclaim the gospel to win favor for ourselves. We do not proclaim the gospel because we want a better culture or society. We proclaim the gospel because at the center of it is a good and holy God who loves people and so desperately wants a relationship with them. You have this precious message given from God that points to God, that is all for God. It's all about him. It's true and it changes lives for eternity. Who cares about anything else? The men who were flogged, beaten, and imprisoned, who sang hymns to the inmates, converted the jailer, the people who were sent to concentration camps, forced to meet in the dead of night, the saints who were beheaded. They did not carry a different message. We have that message. It's been passed to us. And God chose us here and now because we, like they, live in the midst of a world and people who need to hear it. So I can proclaim the gospel in the midst of my family conflict or my work environment or my disbelieving classmates or this cultural moment in the midst of, in the midst of. I'm gonna invite the band to come back up for one more song. And as they come back up here, I wanna read a story or tell you a story uh, from the Old Testament that I 
was reading a couple days ago. It's a story of three Jewish men. You may have heard of these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were in the midst of a people that not only didn't worship their God, but demanded that these three men worship idols of the nation. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not give in. They did not compromise. But instead, they boldly stood firm in the truth. And for that, they were thrown into the fire. The ultimate form of persecution. But an interesting thing happens. As those on the outside look in, the king of the nation suddenly proclaims, I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire. And they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Friends, whatever happens, Jesus stands in the midst of the fire with you. He stands in the midst of the churches. And he is coming back in power. Keep awake. Keep awake. And boldly proclaim the gospel until he returns. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your beautiful gospel. Lord, help us to hold it tightly, to see it as precious, to be bold in proclaiming it. Lord, you don't call us all to go to the synagogue in the marketplace, but you have us where we are for a specific purpose, God, for people who need to hear this good news. Father, help us, embolden us through your spirit to speak it to them. Pray this in your name, amen.